Hey everyone, I'm your familiar stranger Kylie Wong-Dolan. This interview is between Zoe Hatton and her supervisor, Professor Andrew Kipnis. It was recorded in San Jose at the AAA. Just a quick note about the sound quality. It isn't perfect as it was recorded on borrowed equipment. Also, it's not by one of your usual familiar strangers. This was a new experiment by a friend of ours, Zoe. She offered to interview her supervisor and we thought it was a great idea. If you'd like to produce an interview for this project, get in touch with us and pitch your idea. Also, if you would like to support this project, you can do that on Patreon. The website is patreon.com slash thefamiliarstrange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. So let's go. Hey, everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are producing this podcast, and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present, and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia, Pacific and College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. I'm Zoe Hatton, your familiar stranger, recording from the AAA meetings in San Jose. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by Professor Andrew Kipnis, distinguished anthropologist of China, who is currently based at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Andy is responsible for books including Producing Guanxi, Governing Educational Desire, and From Village to City, Social Transformations in a Chinese County Seat. Many scholars of China will be familiar with Andy's work, which has explored social interactions and relationships, education, governance, urbanization, and most recently, funerals. I'm certainly familiar with Andy's work myself, as I've had the great honor of having him as a doctoral supervisor. And so, it really is a joy to share this interview with you all. We'll talk about doing fieldwork in China, thoughts about the current climate of academic talk here at the AAAs, and the evolution of ideas and methods throughout Andy's career. Let's go. So, how are you finding the AAAs so far? How are you finding San Jose? Uh, oh, San Jose, it's, well, being back in the U.S. is very interesting, but yeah, lots of things are interesting. The fires, so all the smoke in the air, and yes, seeing homeless, a lot of homeless people, much more than in Hong Kong, where I'm based now, and, uh, but I am enjoying the meetings. Maybe another thing I've noticed is I feel a lot of young people are, younger scholars are, maybe not so interested in academia, or there seems to be a bit of a split between the older scholars and younger scholars, and that's a bit worrying to me, but I think it has something to do with the lack of jobs out there, and so really pushing people in a more applied direction. Well, that is indeed part of the theme of this year's AAAs, resilience and adaptation. Uh, so perhaps you could comment on some of the ways that you know younger scholars and academics at your stage in your career are uh, addressing some of those problems? I don't know if we're addressing them. Um, It's very difficult, I would say. So what I see is 
the parts of anthropology that are growing are the most applied aspects. And so, you know, I hear about things like workshops in design anthropology, and of course, medical anthropology has always been, it's been big for a while, but it seems to be growing and growing and growing and growing. Maybe things like educational anthropology are growing, work with industry, work with governments. But I guess what I really noticed is that Often I see these panels with older anthropologists and they speak a very academic language and they're the only ones I see speaking that way. And it worries me a little bit, not too much, but it makes me feel that maybe a certain way of thinking and speaking is dying out. I don't think you can ask people who were trained to think in a certain way, all of a sudden they're going to be the leaders of doing things in a different way. I think that change happens differently than that. Okay, so um, perhaps you mean sort of the turn to more plain speak, or just the fact that some of these younger scholars aren't versed in the theoretical... Yes, it's a matter of uh, not being versed, but also of not being very unsure about the extent to which they wish to become that way. So a sort of hesitancy, maybe not born out of a dislike of it, but rather born out of a thought that, you know, if I really focus on reading and writing, in the end, that's not going to help me. It might even make me less employable rather than more employable. And I would be better off learning how to give a sales pitch to a Silicon Valley executive than I, you know, so that's a different way of speaking than speaking at an academic conference as it traditionally was. Anyway, these are sort of very surfacey thoughts, but... Um, no, I think you're, you're yeah. really hitting on something there, and I definitely feel that pressure living here in the Bay Area to, to adapt yeah. <laughs> in that respect, and it's not necessarily a good thing. But maybe we'll just backtrack for a moment. I've already given a brief introduction to you and your work, but perhaps you could explain for our listeners in your own words what it is that you do and maybe what your current research focuses on. I've done research in China for most of my career. And, you know, I've occasionally done a little bit of research in the United States when I was based there and also a little bit of research in Australia when I was based in Australia but I've pretty much kept up doing research in China. And I think that's a combination of sort of my career circumstances, mostly my career circumstances. So, you know, I have noticed there are an awful lot of scholars from the United States who perhaps wrote their dissertation about China and wrote their first book about China, but then they get into careers, you know, somewhere in the United States, it's not easy for them to go back to China and they end up sort of shifting away from doing research on China. And for me, I was at a certain point in my career, I really thought I might have to head down that direction. But then I got a job at ANU. And when I came to the Australian National University, it was not only that it gave me the opportunity, you know, they were encouraging me to go to China to do fieldwork, and I had time to do so. But in fact, they compelled me to do so. So in my contract there, it said, you know, you are hired as the person who's doing research on China in our department, and you are supposed to do research on China. You can't just switch to another part of the world. So they had a very place-based way of hiring people at the time I was hired. And so I continued to do research in China. 
Um, so what stayed constant for me was doing research in China, but not the particular topics that I did research on. So I was always sort of going from one project to a next. And, you know, so I've done research about social relations and gift giving in a village. I've done research about education. I've done research about religion. I've done research about urbanization. And my current research is sort of um, linked to that. I'm looking at funerary ritual. And to me, it's very much linked um, to urbanization because in urban areas, you have a completely different type of ritual industry. And well, not just a different type of ritual industry, you have a ritual industry. Whereas in rural areas at the time I started doing my research anyway, there was very little commercial aspect to familial rituals. Perhaps you could describe some of your methods, what you actually do while you're collecting your data. Right, so almost every project has been somewhat different. And, you know, I'm always trying to think of how can I do something that's systematic how can I move from what I'm finding out to making a coherent argument? And what would the links be between my evidence and my argument and what I'm trying to say? But I haven't only done one sort of research. So different types of research I've done, you know, I've done sort of more traditional ethnographic research, which I guess would be reliant a lot on observation or participant observation. So what things would I count as participant observation? So when I was in the village looking at social relations, um, I would go to weddings, I would go to funerals, I would go to people's homes, I would look at how uh, their homes were laid out, I would give people gifts uh, when I was trying to establish relationships with them, I would invite them out to dinner. Uh, I would be invited to dinner. I would receive gifts. So all these are uh, ways of participating in observing social relationships. And of course, I would also ask questions. But a lot of it was based on what I saw and what I experienced. I would always be asking my question, questioning myself of who is my sample? Who am I talking to? Who am I observing? You know, how would I sociologically categorize these people in terms of class or occupation or ethnicity or gender or whatever, all these categories? And, you know, by asking that question, I'm also asking who am I missing? Who is absent from my sample? And so then when I write about this, how should I describe these examples in terms of what is being represented? I've also, of course, done interviews. When I did my education project, I did a lot of household interviews. And so I would go to a classroom. I would sit in the class for about a month, usually fifth or sixth graders. And classes in China are quite large. There would be 50 or 60 students in each class that I would go into. And after the students got to know me and became comfortable with me, I would give them a letter and to ask their parents permission to go to their home and conduct a household interview. And most of them would say yes, almost all of them. Um, and then I would go to people's homes and conduct interviews. And to me, that was both a form of interview research, but also a form of participant observation because I got to see what their homes were like. And I got to see 
how people interacted in the household. It's two different types of research for me. It was also very good for me in terms of a strategy of representation because these classes that I was analyzing in the place I was doing this research, they had a rule that all classes had to have an equal number of poor and excellent students. So at least in terms of the academic performance of the student, each class offered me a representative sample of what was there at the school. And so that was quite useful for me as a, a sampling method. Now, in my current research, in some ways it's not very ethnographic in that I'm not spending a lot of time with a single group of people, but I go to a lot of cemeteries um, and I can observe what goes on in the cemeteries. I also can look at tombstones and looking at tombstones is very interesting because you know there's all sorts of familial information recorded on there. There's also sometimes little life histories and other types of information about the deceased. You can see who is buried together, which relatives are listed on the tombstones, and then you can do comparisons with things like how this has changed over time. Um, so you compare different sections of a graveyard. We'll usually have people that uh, died in different periods, and so China is evolving very fast, and you can see how that has changed. And then because different cemeteries cost different amount of money, you can also do things about class. So, you know, if you assume that people who are buried in a very inexpensive graveyard are on average of a lower class than people who are buried in a very expensive graveyard, and then you can compare the sort of different practices of inscribing things on tombstones and make certain inferences about that. So that's another kind of sampling method I use. I also interview a lot of people who are involved in the funerary business. And they're often surprisingly easy to talk to because a lot of people don't want to talk to them. So they're sort of happy to have people um, who are willing to talk to them. And I, of course, I try to go to funerals whenever I can. Of course, uh, we all uh, do. <laughs> not yeah. easy, yeah. So these are some of my methods. Okay. Uh, and you've certainly produced some very rich and detailed work over the years that I think anyone who's interested in China would be doing themselves a favor to check out. I also wanted to ask you about perhaps some of the challenges you've encountered doing field work over the years. We all know that when you go out, uh, sometimes you can't get access to the situations and the people that you want to. And I was wondering if you could talk about some general challenges that exist now for younger anthropologists going to China? Well, I mean, so there's definitely projects that I haven't done because I, it didn't work out. One example would be the one on religion. I was, at one point, I decided I would, sort of almost against my own desires, I decided I would do research about this Christian church um, in the county where I'd been doing research. And the reason I say against my own desires is I wasn't so interested in Christianity, and I'm not a terribly religious person myself. And so when, especially when I was young, I felt it awkward to be doing research on religion when I didn't consider myself to be religious. But the people I knew in the church kept on inviting me you know, and they're asking me, why Why don't you come to our church? Why don't you do some research on us? And so finally I did. But then after doing this for a few weeks, 
I found out that everybody I talked to was being debriefed by the government. And I decided, you know, so the police were actually coming in and going to the houses of the people I interviewed. And once I found this out, I just felt it was unethical for me to continue this research. So I simply stopped that project altogether. What else is, you know, so there's political limits. Um, there are, of course, social limits. Some people don't want to talk to you. So the funeral research is a, is a good example of this. You know, it's very difficult to go to funerals in urban areas. So very different to uh, when I first did research in a village, it was considered, what's the right word? People wanted me to go to their funerals because the basic attitude towards funerals was the more people who went, the better. So by going to the funeral, you were actually uh, enhancing the status of the people who were running the funeral. And you, of course, you could bring a gift uh, and show your respect in that way. And there was no, it didn't matter if you didn't know the person who had passed away. But urban areas are not like that. You need an invitation. Urban people are not necessarily keen on having strangers attend their family rituals. And so, you know, I could only go to funerals that somehow I had a very close connection to. Um, so that has been a limitation. One way I've gotten to a few extra funerals is that I've often been associated with universities and uh, universities in China, as also in Hong Kong and in Australia, when a famous old professor has passed away, very often they send out an invitation to everybody in the university to go to uh, the funeral that, in fact, you know, some university people will be speaking at. And so I started going to those funerals as well. And I had, you know, some friends and family in China, and sometimes I would go to their people in those families' funerals as well. So that enabled me to go to a few, but it was definitely a challenge. understanding is that research in China is becoming harder and harder and harder uh, for people to undertake in the past few years under Xi Jinping. And it's hard to know how long that will last. Um, but I'm very concerned about that, both for myself and for younger scholars. Um, I also think that in general, in China, surveillance is becoming more and more sophisticated. I don't know if it's possible to do anonymous interviews anymore. I feel that the government can always reconstruct who you've been talking to because, you know, if you carry around your mobile phone, you, they know where you've been. And there's also all the video cameras. And so I really think in the future, I'm going to be even more circumspect about doing interviews than I have been in the past. And I, I do think that's something that everybody has to be thinking of these days. That sort of leads on to the next question I wanted to ask. A lot of people are curious about tertiary institutions in China and universities and sort of the way the different disciplines are organized. Hmm. Is there anthropology being taught in China? Uh, I'm not quite up to date on this because I know I've, I've recently talked to a colleague from China who's told me he has just written a very long paper in Chinese for a Chinese academic journal about sort of the tensions between 
things that are variously translated as ethnology and then anthropology and then maybe you could call them ethnic studies. And all of these disciplines have various lineages in China and the history is very complex. The structure of universities at China, in China is also very complex. So there are some disciplines that are considered hierarchically above other disciplines. And uh, it really channels how funding runs through the university and who can get funding to do what types of projects. Um, so it's quite a complex issue. Um, this, you know, anthropology. So there are a few departments of anthropology at Shandong University, I think also at Zhongshan University, uh, maybe in Xiamen University. But there are also many, many departments of Minzushue, or the, I guess, you know, that's nationality studies or ethnic studies or ethnology. Uh, and that's, there's some tension between these uh, two approaches to um, anthropology, and then there are various people, as in university systems all over the world, that have been trained in anthropology in various uh, Australian or American or British universities, and but they are located in all sorts of different departments uh, within China. So there, I would say there are many forms of anthropology within China, and mapping them precisely uh, would be difficult for me to do. Nanjing University also has a very good department. So a, a question I get asked a lot from young students who want to start their research in China is sort of choosing a topic, choosing something to go in with. And so I'm wondering like, what general advice you can give in terms of you know, starting out and making some relevant segue into anthropology in China. Well, I think that it has to be a combination of things coming together and you're looking for an intersection. So first of all, it has to be your own interests because I think you'd be crazy to go into something like anthropology. If you want to learn how to say whatever other people tell you to say, uh, you know, maybe you should become a lawyer because <laughs> then you can defend their interests uh, speaking up for them. Uh, so one of the reasons to go into something like academia or anthropology is to have the opportunity to follow a bit your own interests. You should uh, have the confidence to think that, well, if this topic interests me, I'm also a socially constructed person. There's some social grouping out there that would be interested in this because, you know, I'm a reflection of my own society and uh, not just this strange individual with weird individualized interests. And then the third thing that has to come in there, of course, is political possibility. So political and social possibility. So political in the widest sense of the word. So what is it possible for me to research in China without getting people into trouble without getting myself into trouble. And then, of course, you know, that people will welcome. I mean, I wouldn't say you should never do research on topics that people don't want to talk about. But on the other hand, there's an ethical cost to being socially intrusive. So uh, you do have to take into consideration these issues and look for their intersection. That's just got me thinking. I wonder if there'd be a way to incorporate surveillance culture in China into an ethnography somehow and actually build that into your methodology. Certainly. That would be interesting. Yes, certainly. If anyone wants to do that, uh, please 
please do get in touch. Yeah, no, I think that would be a very good topic, though, of course, very sensitive. So you have to think, you know, you can't just go out and I'm sure that you're, you're not going to be allowed to do interviews of the people who stand behind the surveillance cameras in the Public Security Bureau. You'd have to come up with a way of addressing that topic uh, that is a bit more innocent or a bit more possible. It, you know, that's the other thing is you can think of more indirect ways of doing research. Um, now, it's a bit of a trend on the Familiar Strange podcast to ask each other sort of what we've been thinking about lately. Just doesn't have to be in relation to your research. It could be other ideas that other scholars are focusing on or just some concepts that you have that you, you think you might develop further down the line. Do you have anything like that? Anything interesting you're reading? Sure. I I'm, have the side interest now. I mean, so, you know, I, I think it's something on everybody's mind is sort of the rise of populism around the world and... Uh, sort of right-wing nationalisms, and then somehow the links to social media and also links to ideas about truth. Uh, so these are things, you know, if I see newspaper articles on it, I'm always reading it. If I see essays, whatever, in the New York Review of Books, I'm always very interested in reading about. And I think I would be very interested in sort of ideas of truth-making and vernacular forms of truth. So how do whatever people from various walks of life make sense of what they see on social media and decide, you know, what is quote true? Or, you know, so what are their criteria? What are their methods? What are their methods of sorting truthhood from falsehood? How do you act when you're unsure of what is true and what is false? So I, I, that would be something very interesting to me, something like vernacular strategies of dealing with issues of truth and truth and falsehood. Yeah, and fighting against the algorithms that are not working in our favor in, in those regards. Yes, yes. Well, I, I am very sort of, in some ways, I'm very interested in social media, but as an older person and, you know, someone who wasn't brought up with it, I'm very timid about it. I don't want to get my news from Facebook. I don't have a Facebook account. I use WeChat when I'm in China because I have to, but I don't really want to that much. And I definitely try to get my news the old-fashioned way. So I like to go to newspapers and see uh, what they're printing. Uh, well, I want to give you a, an opportunity to plug your latest book, if you want, while we're here. From Village to City, Social Transformation in a Chinese County Seat. If I'm not mistaken, unless you've written another book. Uh, no, no, that's that's my latest book, and yeah, well, I'm I'm uh, I think it's a what would I say? How could I sell it? I mean, I think it's a very, you know, both the strength and the problem with it is sort of a very generalist book. So it's looking at a county seat, but from many many different points of view. So you know, I it's by social transformation. I take that word very seriously. So I take the idea of transformation as being trans, as being you know, there are many, many aspects of social life that are somehow interlinked, and they're all changing together. And uh, there's an interrelation among different forms of change. And so to portray that in the book, I have to, you know, go around a lot of different topics like, you know, city planning and uh, economic production and, uh, you know, types of consumption and the feel of the city 
types of class formation, ideas of what it means to be a youth. And so in some ways, it's kind of a generalist book and because it, it's going around all these different topics. But I think that's a strength in other ways. So it's very interesting to look at the interrelation among different types of changes. And it's a type of analysis that has sort of fallen out of favor. And I think, unfortunately, so. Well, um, I think you've sold it really well. So um, I think we're also running out of time for this interview. It's really a privilege to get the opportunity to sit you down and ask you some questions. And I hope that I've done my job and maybe covered some of the topics some of the listeners are interested in as well. Okay, well, thank um, you very much, Zoe. And yeah. I really enjoyed your questions. And, thank you so uh, much. Enjoy great. the rest of the Triple A's. I will. That was it, me and Andy Kipnis. Today's episode was produced by me, Zoe Hatton, with help from Ian Pollock and the other familiar strangers. Our assistant producers are Deanna Cato and Matthew Fung. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Darbro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>